Chapter Eleven of the Crown of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Crown of Life by George Gissing. Chapter Eleven. From this retreat, Irene wrote to her cousin Olga Hannaford, and in the course of the letter made inquiry whether anything was known at Ewell about a severe illness that had befallen young Mr. Otway. Olga replied that she had heard of no such event, that they had received no news at all of Mr. Otway since his leaving England. This did not allay an uneasiness which in various forms had troubled Irene ever since she heard that her studious acquaintance had abandoned his ambitions and gone back to commerce. A few weeks more elapsed, and being now in Scotland, she received a confirmation of what Arnold Jacks had reported. Immediately on reaching Odessa, Piers Otway had fallen ill, and for a time was in danger. Irene mused. She would have preferred not to think of Otway at all, but often did so, and couldn't help it. A certain reproach of conscience connected itself with his name. But as time went on, and it appeared that the young man was settled to his mercantile career in Russia, she succeeded in dismissing him from her mind. For the next three years she lived with her father in London a life pretty evenly divided between studies and the amusements of her world. Dr. Derwent pursued his quiet activity. In a certain sphere he had reputation. The world at large knew little or nothing of him. All he aimed at was the diminution of human suffering. Whether men thanked him for his life's labour did not seem to him a point worth considering. He knew that only his scientific brethren could gauge the advance in knowledge and consequent power over disease due to his patient toil. It was a question of minute discoveries, of investigations unintelligible to the layman. Some of his colleagues held that he foolishly restricted himself in declining to experimentalise in corpore vili whenever such experiments were attended with pain. He was spoken of in some quarters as a sentimentalist, a man who might go far but for his fats. One great pathologist held that the whole idea of pursuing science for mitigation of human ills was nothing but a sentimentality and a fad. A debate between this personage and Dr. Derwent was brought to a close by the latter's inextinguishable mirth. He was indeed a man who laughed heartily, and laughter often served him where another would have waxed choleric. Only a dog! he exclaimed once to Irene, apropos of this subject, and being in his graver mood. Why, what assurance have I that any given man is of more importance to the world than any given dog? How can I know what is important and what is not when it comes to the ultimate mystery of life? Create me a dog, just a poor little mongrel puppy, and you shall torture him. Then, and not until then, and in that event I reserve my opinion of the... He checked himself on the point of a remark which seemed of too wide a bearing for the girl's ears, but Irene supplied the hiatus for herself, as she was beginning to do pretty often when listening to her father. Dr. Derwent was in a sense a self-made man. In youth he had gone through a hard struggle, and but for his academic successes he could not have completed the course of medical training. Twenty years of very successful practice had made him independent, and a mechanical invention, which he had patented, an ingenuity of which he thought nothing till some friend insisted on its value, 
raised his independence to moderate wealth. For his children's sake he was glad of this comfort. Like every educated man who has known poverty at the outset of life, he feared it more than he cared to say. His wife had brought him nothing save her beauty and her noble heart. She wedded him when it was still doubtful whether he would hold his own in the fierce fight for a living. She died before the days of his victory. Now and then a friend who heard him speak of his wife's family smiled with the thought that he only just escaped being something of a snob, which merely signified that a man of science attached value to dissent. Dr. Derwent knew the properties of such blood as ran in his wife's veins, and it rejoiced him to mark the characteristics which Irene inherited from her mother. He often suffered anxiety on behalf of his sister, Mrs. Hannaford, whom he knew to be pinched in circumstances, but whom it was impossible to help. Lee Hannaford he disliked and distrusted. The men were poles apart in character and purpose. The family had now left Ewell, and lived in a poor house in London. Olga was trying to earn money by her drawing, not, it seemed, with much success. Hannaford was always said to be on the point of selling some explosive invention to the British government, whence would result a fortune. But the government had not yet come to terms. "'What a shame it is,' quoth Dr. Derwent, "'that an honest man who facilitates murder on so great a scale should be kept waiting for his reward.' Hannaford pursued his slight acquaintance with Arnold Jacks, who, in ignorance of any relationship, once spoke of him to Miss Derwent. "'An ingenious fellow. I should like to make some use of him, but I don't quite know how.' "'I'm sorry to say he belongs by marriage to our family,' replied Irene. "'Indeed? Why sorry?' "'I detest his character. He is neither a gentleman nor anything else that one can respect. It closed a conversation in which they had differed more sharply than usual, with, on Irene's part, something less than the wonted gaiety of humour. They did not see each other very often, but always seemed glad to meet, and always talked in a tone of peculiar intimacy, as if conscious of mutual understanding. Yet no two acquaintances could have been in greater doubt as to each other's mind and character. Irene was often mentally occupied with Mr. Jacks, and one of the questions she found most uncertain was whether he in turn ever thought of her with like interest. Now she seemed to have proof that he sought an opportunity of meeting. Now again he appeared to have forgotten her existence. He interested her in his personality. He interested her in his work. She would have liked to speak of him with her father, but Dr. Derwent never broached the subject and she could not herself lead up to it. Whenever she saw his name in the paper, where it often stood in reports of public festivities or in items of social news, her eye dwelt upon it, and her fancy was stirred. Curiosity, perhaps, had the greater part in her feeling. Arnold Jacks seemed to live so largely, in contact with such great affairs and such eminent people. One day, at length, a little paragraph in an evening journal announced that he was engaged to be married, and to a lady much in the light, the widowed daughter of a conservative statesman. It was only an hour or two after reading this news that Irene met him at dinner and spoke with him of a Hannaford, 
Neither to Arnold himself nor to anyone else did she allude to the rumoured engagement, but that night she was not herself. About lunchtime on the next day she received a note from Jack's. His attention had been drawn, he wrote, to an absurd bit of gossip connecting his name with that of a lady whose friend he was, and absolutely nothing more. Would Miss Derwent, if occasion arose, do him the kindness to contradict this story in her circle? He would be greatly obliged to her. Irene was something more than surprised. It struck her as odd that Arnold Jacks should request her services in such a matter as this. In an obscure way, she half resented the brief off-hand missive, and she paid no further attention to it. A month later, she, her father and brother, were on their way to Switzerland. Stepping into the boat at Dover, she saw in front of her Arnold Jacks. It was a perfectly smooth passage, and they talked all the way, for part of the time alone. Uh, I think, said Arnold at the first opportunity, looking her in the face, you never replied to a letter of mine last month about a certain private affair. A letter? Oh, yes, I didn't think it required an answer. Don't you generally answer letters from your friends? Irene in turn gave him a steady look. Generally, yes, but not when I have the choice between silence and being disagreeable. You were both silent and disagreeable, said Arnold, smiling. Do you mind being disagreeable again, and telling me what your answer would have been? Simply that I never, if I can help it, talk about weddings and rumours of weddings, and that I couldn't make an exception in your case. Arnold laughed in the old way. Most original rule, Miss Derwent, and admirable. If all kept to it, I shouldn't have been annoyed by that silly chatter. It occurs to me that I perhaps ought not to have sent you that note. I did it in a moment of irritation, wanting to have the stupid thing contradicted right and left as fast as possible. I won't do it again. They were on excellent terms once more. Irene felt a singular pleasure in his having apologised. It was one of the very rare occasions of his yielding to her on any point whatsoever. Never had she felt so kindly disposed to him. Arnold was going to Paris and on business. He hinted at something pending between his company and a French syndicate. "'You're a sort of informal diplomatist,' said Irene, her interest keen. "'Now and then, yes, and,' he added with the frankness, which was one of his more amiable points, "'I rather like it.' "'One sees that you do. Better, I suppose, than the thought of going into Parliament.' "'That may come some day,' he answered, glancing at a gull that hovered above the ship. "'Not whilst my father sits there.' "'You would be on different sides, I suppose.' Arnold smiled, and went on to say that he was uneasy about his father's health. John Jacks had fallen of late into a habit of worrying about things great and small, as though age were suddenly telling upon him. He fretted over public affairs. He suffered from the death of old friends, especially that of John Bright, whom he had held in affectionate regard for a lifetime. Irene was glad to hear this expression of anxiety, for it sometimes seemed to her 
that Arnold Jacks had little, if any, domestic feeling. She wished they could have travelled further together. Their talks were always broken off too soon, just when she began to get a glimpse of characteristics still unknown to her. On the journey she thought constantly of him, not with any sort of tender emotion, but with much curiosity. It would have gratified her to know what degree of truth there was in that rumour of his engagement a month ago. Some, undoubtedly, for she had noticed a peculiar smile on the faces of persons who alluded to it. His apparent coldness towards women in general might be natural, or might conceal mysteries. So difficult a man to know, and so impossible to decide whether he was really worth knowing. Among intimates of her own sex, Irene had a reputation for a certain chaste severity, becoming at moments all but prudery. It did not altogether harmonise with the tone of highly taught young women who rather prided themselves on freedom of thought, and to some extent of utterance. Singular in one so far from cold-blooded, so abounding in vitality. Towards men, her attitude seemed purely intellectual. No one had ever so much as suspected a warmer interest. A hint of things forbidden with regard to any male acquaintance caused her to turn away, silent, austere. That such things not seldom came to her hearing was a motive of troubled reflection, common enough in all intelligent girls who live in touch with the wider world. Men puzzled her, and Irene did not like to be puzzled. As free from unwholesome inquisitiveness as a girl can possibly be, she often wished to know, once and for all, whatever was to be learnt about the concealed life of men. To know it and to have done with it, to settle her mind on that point as on any other that affected the life of a reasonable being. Yet she shrank from all such enquiry with a sense of womanly pride, doing her best to believe that there was no concealment in the case of any man with whom she could have friendly relations. She scorned the female cynic, she disliked the carelessly liberal in moral judgment. Profoundly mysterious to her was everything covered by the word passion, a word she detested. Her way of seeing life on the amusing side aided, of course, her maidenly severity against trouble of sense and sentiment. This she had from her father, a man of quips and jokes on the surface of his seriousness. As she grew older, it threatened a decline of intimacy between her and her cousin Olga, who, never naturally buoyant, was becoming so cheerless, so turbid of temper, that Irene found it difficult to talk with her for long together. Domestic miseries might greatly account for the girl's mood, but Irene had insight enough to perceive that this was not all, and she felt uncomfortably helpless. To jest seemed unfeeling sympathy of the sentimental sort she could not give. She feared that Olga was beginning to shrink from her. Since the Hannaford removal to London, they had not been able to see much of each other. Irene understood that she was not very welcome in the little house at Hammersmith, even before her aunt wrote to ask her not to come. Lee Hannaford's aloofness from his wife's relatives had turned to hostility, he spoke of them with increasing bitterness, threw contempt on Dr. Derwent's scientific work, and condemned Irene as a butterfly of fashion. Olga ceased to visit the house in Bryanston Square, and the cousins only corresponded. 
it was dr derwent's opinion that hannaford could not be quite sane he was much troubled on his sister's account and had often pondered extreme measures for her rescue from an intolerable position at length there came to pass the event to which mrs hannaford had looked as her only hope the widowed sister in america died and out of her abundance her children all provided for left to the unhappy wife in england a substantial bequest news of this came first to dr derwent who was appointed trustee but before he had time to communicate with mrs hannaford a letter from her occasioned him new anxiety his sister wrote that olga was bent on making a most undesirable marriage having fallen in love with a penniless nondescript who called himself an artist a man given it was suspected to drink and without any decent connection that one could hear of a wretched squalid affair would the doctor come at once and see olga her father was away as usual of course the girl would not be influenced by him in any case she was altogether in a strange wild headstrong state and one could not be sure how soon the marriage might come about with wrinkled brows the vexed pathologist set forth for hammersmith End of chapter eleven